Hey, Deepa, can you hear me now? So look, I was excited to talk to you about, you know, all the research that you're doing. Um, I've gotten a chance to know you through EFL, and I'm hoping you might share a little bit about EFL and uh, the research that you do and the research that you've got a lot of attention for recently on everything I've been reading. Okay. Um, so first of all, uh, pleased to be speaking with you, Neil. Uh, thanks for the chance. Um, so I am um, a professor in economics at the Stern School of Business here at New York University. Uh, the EFL stands for the Endless Frontier Labs. Um, Endless Frontier Labs, our core at, at the Endless Frontier Labs, our mission is to uh, take science science and technology-based breakthroughs and make big, successful businesses out of them. That's uh, what we do. Uh, in terms of my research, I think about entrepreneurship, why people become entrepreneurs, how public policies affect entrepreneurship, how entrepreneurs get funded, uh, and uh, kind of overall, generally, how innovative ideas uh, become businesses and succeed in the markets. That, that's the work I do. Well, and, and Deepak, as you kind of talk a little bit more about the work that I was excited to, you know, read more and more about it and read that you did uh, on entrepreneurs and how they're motivated. One of the things that I was struck, and maybe you can tie this all together for me, is how you're trying at every, it would seem, every end of the spectrum to truly understand what's motivating entrepreneurs from EFL, right? That that was the reason you told me you started it. Yeah. Um, Versus having a second child, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. EFL. <laughs> EFL is a second child. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, uh, tie this all together for me. Like, you obviously wanted to go deeper. You wanted to understand. You'd done this really novel research on entrepreneurs that I couldn't disagree with after reading. Um, kind of take me through that spectrum before you before you get to that work. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So uh, as an academic, my interest in entrepreneurship was uh, motivated by what seemed like a paradox. Uh, when we look at the academic work on entrepreneurship, pretty much about 30, 40 years of work uh, that seems to look at the data seems to suggest that entrepreneurs are adversely selected individuals. Now, what do we mean by that? Uh, it means that when we look at the data from the population, let us say the population of the United States or the population of a different country, it seems like systematically entrepreneurs, uh, based on observables, uh, seem to come out as individuals who do not have spectacular credentials, generally credentials that we associate associate with success, making money, and so on. So to be specific, entrepreneurs generally seem to be individuals who cannot keep jobs or do not or cannot find jobs or cannot stay in jobs for long <laughs> and in general are underpaid or rejected by the traditional uh, job markets. But on the other hand, uh, all the anecdotal stories we hear of individuals like uh, Michael Dell or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates certainly do not seem like these are individuals you associate with rejection. They're spectacularly smart. We all know that. Um, 
They have gone on to create multi-billion-dollar businesses, so it cannot be that uh, you, you know someone could not hire them or they couldn't have been productive in jobs. So uh, there seemed to be this fundamental paradox between uh, what, what the academic literature was suggesting and what we seem to infer from looking at successful entrepreneurs around the world. So I, I really wanted them to understand, you know, why why we see this difference. And that's really what got me all excited about entrepreneurship. Uh, so while on the one hand, the academic literature kind of uh, seems to suggest entrepreneurs are adversely selected, historically, we have always recognized that entrepreneurs are phenomenally important to the economy, right? I mean, this goes back to the right. theory yeah. of uh, creative destruction, basically Joseph Schumpeter saying uh, that the way modern capitalistic societies progress is by the constant replacement of old ideas and old companies by the new. And that the ch agents of change were the entrepreneurs who usually came up with the new ideas and worked to have the old replaced by the new. Uh, and then, even then, uh, you, you know, that's kind of, uh, you can treat the theory of creative destruction not as a theory, but as a hypothesis. But when you look at the data, what you find, for instance, is that year after year in the U.S. economy, uh, new jobs are created by businesses that are less than five years old. On the net, every year, the millions of jobs that are created in the economy happen to be from the new businesses. Uh, the existing incumbents, even the multinationals that you can think of, on the net end up destroying jobs year after year. And this is an empirical fact. So there seems to be, uh, you know, both in theory as well as kind of uh, in the data evidence that new businesses and entrepreneurs are phenomenally important for the economy. But on the other hand, uh, you know, this kind of uh, paradox that entrepreneurs seem to be job market rejects. So. Uh, was really excited to try and reconcile these, uh, look at the data and why we might be seeing this. And that was really kind of what led me to exploring this systematically. Well, and, and, and tell us about your conclusions, because I was, you know, still a little surprised because, you know, I thought I was kind of adversely selected. But the more I read about your data, the more I was like, OK, no, I'm an entrepreneur for a very different reason. Yeah, so, uh, so um, you know, uh, the plural of anecdote is data in some ways. So I wanted to take exactly these examples that everyone talks about, the very successful entrepreneurs, Michael Dell, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Evan Williams, who was a co-founder of Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison. And then we went back, and uh, this is work with my co-author, Justin Tumlinson, uh, who was uh, you know, a colleague of mine that uh, when we were working on our PhDs at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and we found something very interesting that uh, successful as these individuals were, uh, you know, uh, Dell, Jobs, Gates, Williams, Zuckerberg, uh, Ellison, they had all dropped out of school. So Michael Dell dropped out of school when he was 19, Jobs also out of Reed College when he was 19, Gates uh, dropped out when he was 20, Evan Williams dropped out when he was 20, Zuckerberg also from Harvard when he was 20, Larry Ellison dropped out when he was 20, uh, Travis Kalanick, Uber founder, dropped out when he was 21. The list is very, very long. So uh, if you strip the names off of these individuals and simply look at their job qualifications, it 
then starts making sense a little bit. Their qualifications does not look that different from anyone who finds it hard to find a job on the job markets. Uh, these are generally dropouts. Some of them may even look like they were fired by companies. Uh, Steve Jobs very famously uh, went to Hewlett-Packard and asked for a job, and they rejected him because he had not gone through college yet. Likewise, Jan Coombe, who uh, sold WhatsApp for face, uh, to Facebook for, uh, I don't know, about uh, $12 or $14 billion, had actually, four years before, applied for a job at Facebook and been rejected by Facebook because he was a dropout of San Jose uh, State University. So we started wondering then whether this uh, was not a more systematic phenomena that individuals who were dropouts out of college and therefore rejected by companies, possibly because companies generally consider educational credentials an important factor in making their uh, decisions, we wondered whether these were not more likely to be entrepreneurs. And that's where we looked at the data. We looked at a sample that uh, is representative of the United States at large, we also looked at a sample uh, out of the United Kingdom just to make sure that our explanation was not driven out of the U.S. Um, alone, uh, you, you know, a, a sample that was representative of the population of the United Kingdom. And what we found was that job rejects likely because they did not have the same sort of educational qualifications and credentials to put on their resume were most likely to be entrepreneurs. And not any job reject, but particularly those individuals who had qualifications lower than their actual abilities were most likely to be entrepreneurs. And moreover, since it is your fundamental ability to be productive that determines success in real life, these were also individuals who were most likely to be successful as entrepreneurs. Uh, that was what we found through the data. And so... Did the uh, data talk anything about, you know, where they learned their soft skills to be able to ma manage, a, you know, I'm sure like the, the likes of Travis did, maybe didn't learn it as well as exactly, not, not possibly Mark Zuckerberg as uh, <laughs> some of the recent, that, that's exactly right. Soft skills is something that is really, really hard to measure in the data. So in the data, we use, uh, you know, basically a very standard measure of general intelligence. Uh, that has been widely used in economics and in uh, you know social science. It is sort of a composite score that is a mishmash of a bunch of different attributes, like your spatial reasoning ability, your ability to do arithmetic, your ability to pick up a new language, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it doesn't directly measure soft skills, but People who have used the measure before suggest that it is a pretty good indicator of general learning ability. And that's the measure that we use to um, predict productivity, but it's also a general measure of ability that we use that we find highly predictive of transitions into entrepreneurship. We also find, by the way, even for those who did not become entrepreneurs, the same measure uh, basically is highly predictive of any other measure of success you can think of, such as, you know, uh, high wages, uh, bonuses that you earn, or 
uh, even education, in fact, higher degrees and so on. So it seems to have reasonable productivity, although we are not able to really separate out soft skills from hard skills from that measure. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, and, and, and so to kind of to, to resum up what you were saying, um, you know, the, the, the thing that was interesting is that most companies couldn't recognize because they had to they couldn't recognize skill because they had to have people fit into boxes. Right. They had to exactly. find a system to to be able to hire people. Right. And yep. um, entrepreneurs don't fit into the average system. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly right. So the issue, I think, comes from uh, the fact that when you have a very large corporation, they're usually looking to bring in individuals like themselves. And, you know, when you look at large corporations, like how are individuals already selected in? I mean, they generally look for, you know, the conventional things, right? Like, uh, do you have a fancy degree? Have you come from another uh, respectable company before? Um, And how long have you worked for? Do you have references from uh, those individuals that we might generally consider respectable? Again, individuals like uh, ourselves and so on. And most entrepreneurs do not usually have these things. Uh, you, you know, it's kind of uh, only recently I kind of completed reading the movie Moneyball. So there's like, uh, or, or re- reading the book Moneyball. It was also made into a movie uh, with Brad Pitt. Yeah, but what a it's, great a, movie. it's a it's it's it, what a great movie. But it's something very sim- similar. I mean, if you look at kind of Oakland Ace when they kind of got, got started, right? Uh, Oakland Ace was able to put together a fantastic team with uh, a very, very, a fraction of the budget of a team like the New York Yankees, basically because, uh, you, you, you know, they were, they, they found a way to build a team based on questioning conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom basically was the one used by scouts. And scouts were picking off these high school sort of kids based on what they thought would make them successful players. They were basically looking at things like, you know, could the kids run hard? They were looking for the fancy home runs. Uh, you know, could you hit powerfully and so on? But eventually that was not was predict- what was predictive of successes. That was, uh, you, you know, they, they found a way to do that. Uh, so I think there are a lot of kind of uh, ways in which I think uh, our systems, the, the traditional ways in which we evaluate productivity and individuals are broken. Did you know, for example, that apparently 30% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are six foot two? What has, <laughs> what has height? Uh, anything to do, you know, with, with being a successful manager or uh, I'm being laughing because I'm six two and a half. <laughs> yeah. There, there you go. Congratulations. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Got a third of the issue taken care of. <laughs> uh, but, but if you start looking at successful entrepreneurs, uh, it has nothing to do with it. And that really spoke to the broken system of evaluation and you not fitting in a box and uh, that leading to entrepreneurship. Wait, so um, it was super interesting, right? Um, and I actually had a chance to even talk to um, the Yankees general manager, um, Brian Cashman, um, uh-huh. You know, and they were employing Moneyball as well. Of course, everybody is. No, Seattle no, Mariners no, everyone using it now. Is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, we, we see this massive breakdown in the system. Are people starting to, you know, I, I kind of think of your research as, as groundbreaking, at least to me. Maybe it is. Oh, um, thanks a lot. Um, 
are, are big companies starting to use it? How long until Google starts to say, or Microsoft, where my wife works, starts to say, you know, we ought to be hiring these other people um, because they're going to add value in different ways that are harder to predict? Uh, I think they certainly uh, have, uh, especially in recent times. I think that's exactly what they do, and they'll continue to do that. But will it stop people from being entrepreneurs? No, because this is, you know, the, the very fact that companies start hiring these individuals does not mean that they can still offer all the other things that entrepreneurship offers. So, for example, one of the most attractive aspects of entrepreneurship is that you can enjoy the full residual of your efforts. So Microsoft, for example, will never be able to offer any single individual almost uh, a, a, a 100% sort of payback of the outputs of their own efforts. Right, right, right. no and chance. And that's basically the most attractive thing about entrepreneurship. In, in industries like finance, where you can monitor and measure individual output, let us say, for example, in trading or some of these jobs or basically in pure sales, you will still be able to offer individuals a reasonable proportion of uh, their efforts because you can measure their effort. But in most other industries, because for production, you need an entire team and uh, you have bureaucracy and many other things, even though companies start using these things and, uh, and, and start attracting individuals, I don't think they will still ever be able to completely offer an alternative comparable to entrepreneurship. So, uh, so yes, companies are already doing it, uh, but it, it is still not uh, for many individuals. Exactly. Very difficult. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, so switch gears with me, right? Uh, yep. Let's go back to EFL because uh, you know you're, you're certainly a pioneer in in running a program like the one you're running at EFL. Um, you know, and and getting to participate in it is fairly interesting. And obviously, you know, I I found a company that uh, I was excited to invest Hello? in as well after Neil? mentoring for a little while. Um, I seem to have lost you. Take take me through. Are you still there? Hello. Oak. Okay. Hello. Hello. Okay. Okay. There, I'm back. I don't know what happened. So you Great. know, let's go back through EFL, right? Yep. So. Um, you know, you're doing some um, pioneering work. You know, I was able to find a really interesting company by mentoring a bunch of companies there. I was able to learn a lot, you know, as one of the investors or mentors in the room. Um, take me through that program, break it down and break down why you're so excited about it and why, you know, I, I think though we haven't said this, we, we'd both be surprised if in the next five to seven years, a unicorn didn't come out of EFL, right? To, to also add the pressure out loud now for you. <laughs> so Absolutely. Thanks a lot. I mean, we, we love pressure. We love pressure. It keeps us going. Uh, you know, it, it, it also means that people uh, expect something meaningful for us, which is always great. It's a tremendous motivator to do what uh, we, we, we want to do. So um, at the Endless Frontier Labs, right, uh, uh, our key motivation is to solve a problem that is not unrelated to what we have been talking about before. So for me, the biggest sort of friction or problem that really stifles entrepreneurship is an informational one. It is a problem of information. It's a problem of information. Sometimes you do not know the full ability of individuals, and that's why you need entrepreneurship. In other cases, 
you, you know, you do not know the full sort of value of a fundamentally new technology or a new scientific idea, and that really kind of um, can 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 stop some investors from investing in uh, the ideas and so on. So at the end of the day, for me, the biggest barrier to entrepreneurship is an informational one. So at the Endless Frontier Labs, uh, our key mission is to reduce a primary source of information that is prevalent a lot in particularly the U.S. universities. And this informational issue comes from the fact that uh, the government, for example, spends billions of dollars in funding very novel research, right? And, you know, the National Institutes of Health, for example, spends about $30, $32 billion uh, of, of uh, money on uh, life sciences research every year. And much of this research is conducted in the university-based labs. And it is generally done by people who are experts in the fields, who have spent their entire lifetimes uh, kind of thinking of a particular problem, a particular research area, and so on. But then, uh, but then when they want to really commercialize these ideas and take them to the markets, they usually need to convince a lot of others in this world, too, uh, that their ideas are worth investing in. They need to convince, for example, uh, development partners, like maybe a large pharma company that has the resources and the other kind of complementary assets to uh, commercialize the invention. It needs to uh, convince the venture capitalists who need to kind of fund the idea and take it through the markets and so on. So it needs to fund uh, potential, it, it needs to convince potential customers, other suppliers, and so on. And then there is a massive informational issue uh, and basically these ideas then can fall through the cracks. Oftentimes what happens is uh, these, these uh, first-time founders and scientists find one or two mentors, if they're lucky, who have sort of had the experience of commercializing ideas and get advice from them. But then this is not the same as having a very systematic process that gives them the advice because it leaves a lot to chance. It leaves a lot to the expertise of the individuals that they get advice from and so on. And so particularly in the life sciences, you can spend a lot of time then uh, going down wrong paths and after a year or two of going down the wrong path, realizing that you have made uh, you, you know, uh, incorrect investments or decisions, and then it, it is too late. The entire idea falls uh, falls through the cracks. That, I mean, and, and this is why, like, this whole process where you have to take the idea from a lab through, uh, through commercialization, the markets, it's called the valley of death. A lot of ideas basically fall down the, th right. these cracks in... Uh, and, and you have uh, then no, no proper way of uh, bringing these ideas up successfully and help them go through the markets. That's what we try to solve at the EFL, uh, at the Endless Frontier Labs. We try to put these, um, uh, th these, these early stage founders who have brilliant scientific ideas immediately in contact with three types of mentors. Mentors like you, Neil, who have expertise uh, on the market side uh, and have had the experience of seeing multiple previous ideas succeed and therefore can help uh, these founders make the right decisions. Uh, we put uh, the founders also in front of 
people who have built very successful companies before. And I know you have also done that. So uh, with that, you are able to very quickly kind of uh, tell these scientific founders how to kind of deploy their smarts uh, in a way that will maximize uptake in the markets. But we also put them in front of uh, brilliant scientists who have themselves commercialized multiple ideas before. Is it fair to say that, you know, in EFL, that you have 80% of the top tier VCs in New York City attending? Because uh, that, that, that's my count. I mean, that's uh, my count. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because rarely could you, maybe the number's uh, under 80%, fine. It's a, it's a very large number, about 50%. One of yeah. the interesting things that I think people probably don't know is, first of all, not everybody really gets together in a format like this. Yep. Rarely could you speed date... Um, get mentoring, and then potentially, ultimately, if if you do well, get to a pitch with a top-tier VC, uh, the likes of uh, Josh Wolf from Lux Capital or some of the folks from NEA that I've met there, a number of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the chance to present as a company in EFL to both get the, you know, as a brand new company to both get the experience on what your license should look like from your university all the way to what your first MVV product should really be looking like to what your first uh, clinical trial design study might look like, you know, is super invaluable. Um, Absolutely. Being able to ask, you know, a guy like Francois Nader, who's taken, who sits on the board of three $20 billion plus companies on exactly, you know, yeah. NASDAQ for yeah. advice, yeah. you know, just irreplaceable. He's not going to meet you on the street. You know, he's not going to meet you if he doesn't know you. And you can get, you know, his specific advice every time you show up on, on the quarterly program. Exactly right. I think there are at least three elements, right, that really help the startups. The first is simply, as you say, uh, getting advice from folks who have done this before, who are remarkably successful. And we have many, many of those uh, in, in the EFL. The second thing is realizing that amazingly successful as these individuals are, they may not always agree about the best course of action forward. So the process of actually watching them deliberate and discuss and argue and convince each other really is what allows these startups to possibly cut down uh, their whole process of learning from maybe years and years. Because we are talking of phenomenally smart individuals kind of here who have a lot of experience kind of duke it out and kind of come up eventually and agree upon what the best course of action is. That is priceless. So uh, in one day, you have almost reduced uh, you, you know, and basically saved yourself years and years of potentially going down different paths. Uh, that that really kind of happens. So it's advice, but it is also that uh, that that sort of uh, ability to observe the process of deliberation and discussion that might save you down the path of going down multiple potential options. That is very valuable. The third thing, as you suggested, is the accountability. The accountability that comes from, uh, you know telling these individuals that next time we see you, we commit to doing some of these things and knowing that they will likely kind of gauge you and your ability to execute based on what they see uh, and and sort of the discipline that that sort of enforces. I think those things are absolutely critical that are very uh, difficult to get in uh, similar programs, definitely in uh, New York City, but also more broadly across the United States, that makes uh, the EFL successful. 
Well, so Deepak, what percentage of the companies that go through EFL actually end up getting some funding, even though that's not necessarily completely the point? Uh, so that's a great question. And, uh, you know, this last year, uh, we brought in 27 startups. And of the 27 startups we brought in at the start of the nine-month program, 13 survived. Uh, of the 13 that survived, I think about eight or nine startups were looking for funding. Many of them had already uh, raised a small round before they got into the program, and most of them will be raising another round within the next uh, half year or so. But of the seven or eight that were looking for funding over the course of the program, each one of the startups was able to get some interest or the other and uh, funding as well over the course of the program. So I would say 100% of the startups that are looking for funding end up getting funding. It's not a guarantee we give, of course. It is uh, just basically a probability based on what we see in the room. Uh, but this last year, we were very successful. Every startup that was looking for funding was able to attract funding over the course of the program. Yeah, and I, I just want to break this down one more time for entrepreneurs. Sorry to, yep. to go into some detail. It's so important, yes. You essentially show up for every 60 days. You yep. get mentors who give you two hours a month um, yep. if, they, if they raise their hands. Yeah. And uh, one of the companies that we invested in at a different affiliated chapter, actually in, in 40 hours was able to raise $3 million. Yeah. So it's a fairly low commitment of time to have um, you know, a fairly successful group of people both put time, money, and, you know, just continued interest way beyond the program. So you meet every 60 days, you have five different sessions. If you do really well, you get to go to demo day. Um, and, you know, I think you'd be remiss to, to miss out not to apply. Uh, exactly um, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, j just to quickly add on to that, right, you generally talk to a VC. Uh, I don't know about you, Neil. I would love to hear uh, the statistics from you. But for most VCs, you tend to see about 100 startup before you invest in maybe uh, one company or maybe two. Out of yeah, mine probably not quite that good. We're, we, see, right. we saw somewhere between 13 and 1400 deals last year. Yeah. Uh, or we'll say this year and we'll invest between maybe seven or eight total companies. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and so just kind of thinking about those numbers and saying of the 13 graduates uh, and of the or, or maybe even the eight, eight startups of the 13 that were looking for funding, almost everyone is getting funding. I mean, that's a remarkable reduction in uncertainty. And, uh, you know, kind of, kind of for the startups that come in, uh, just uh, a, a remarkable kind of uh, t turn 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 around in, in their probability of getting funded if they kind of come in through the program. Well, yeah. You know, I, I, it was really pretty interesting to, to hear more about EFL from your perspective. You know, I, before we kind of end the podcast today, I'm hoping for some kind of what I'd like to call lightning round predictions. Um, I, I'm curious, you live in New York. You know, I think it's one of the healthier ecosystems for startups. And, I, you know, I actually had a startup in, in the Bay Area for a number of years as well. Yep. Um, it was co-located in Arizona as well yep. uh, for, for cost savings. Yep. Um, take me through some some interesting predictions you expect about uh, the New York ecosystem over the next you know five years. 
uh, hard, stuff that we can actually pin to you. Like, you know, Deepak was certainly wrong or Deepak was certainly right. <laughs> this is going to be a tough one. I mean, you're, you're putting me in a tough spot. <laughs> academics, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> academics hate to make predictions, you know. Uh, we are reasonably comfort, uh, comfortable looking at the past, but even there we try to hedge our bets. But now you're, 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 you're asking me to look into the future. And, yeah, and, do you and think play. that the number of unicorns, <laughs> for instance, might be surpassed and might, New York City might surpass the number of unicorns in Silicon Valley? In the next uh, five years? Uh, I, I think that's relatively hard to say. But what I can say is... So but to uh, take a bet. You, it's okay if you're wrong here. Uh, you're not betting your life earning here. Uh, no, that's, that, that's great. Um, 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 good, good to know that you're not after my life. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but I, 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 I think uh, five may be too short a time. But uh, let us say in 15 years, I can easily see uh, New York City... Uh, uh, being uh, as large an ecosystem, as vibrant and as healthy an ecosystem for startups as Silicon Valley. And just to kind of put things in perspective, right, 10 years ago, New York was not among the top five uh, ecosystems for tech startups by any measure, okay? Uh, right now, New York is number two in the world, right behind Silicon Valley. Uh, in some quarters, I think in 2017, in one quarter, New York-based startups got even more VC funding than Silicon Valley-based startups. Uh, uh, now, overall, I think we get about roughly half the VC funding. New York-based uh, tech startups get about half the VC funding as Silicon Valley-based startups. The growth rates in uh, New York are starting in some spaces to look even better than in Silicon Valley. Uh, but then if we kind of very quickly to substantiate myself, uh, think about what is driving the action in New York. It is really that uh, rather than, you know, um, generation four or generation five technologies building on generation two or generation th three technologies, that that's what really happened in Silicon Valley and to an extent in Boston. Now, uh, technology is dif disrupting industries like health, media, finance, publishing, advertising. And you look at where the, all the action in these industries has been historically located, it's been in New York. So to the extent that uh, much of the action in the future will be driven out of technological disruption of New York industries, and these are all massive industries, right? Health, finance, technology, health, finance, uh, publishing, media, advertising, retail, real estate. I think New York is the place to be. And I can easily see New York uh, kind of easily supplanting New, uh, Silicon Valley as the world's leading ecosystem. Well, there you go. I, I actually, I, I find it easier to do business there, um, oddly, than Silicon Valley. Th that's um, the other thing. Uh, you talk to New York VCs, there is a, a certain kind of, uh, you, you, you know, uh, sense of urgency to them. They want to know how the real markets are going to be disrupted by tech. So you will, you are unlikely to see companies that are uh, living in a tech bubble for 10, 15, 20 years and being valued at billions of dollars before they get real customers and make real profits, those types of companies are le less likely to come out of New York than in Silicon Valley. So there's that urgency and real world sort of uh, push. I, you know, you know, I, I, I found it different. Here, here's what I expected. I expected yeah. New York in general to be uh, stereotypically pushy. Um, yep. stereotypically, uh, you know, aggressive and not really caring and focused on exactly what they want. 
Yeah. I found something very different in, yeah. in meeting New York VCs and in yeah. meeting New York angels. Just, I found this insane curiosity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I hadn't seen that curiosity very many times in my entire life, let alone in an entire ecosystem. Yeah. And I could literally just, you know, I, I can't tell you about anybody I met even through EFL that wasn't just very curious. And so I Absolutely. don't know what's going on with the culture to create that curiosity, but I feel like there's more of a place to, to share and to, to um, get advice and to, you know, actually build something collaboratively going on in New York than I've seen literally in any other ecosystem. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And uh, I don't know if you're observing that as well. I mean, because you live there. And so, I mean, you see what you see. Yeah, it's a little hard for me to see. I, I have always found New Yorkers phenomenally curious and kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been a fantastic experience here. Uh, but but I, I do think particularly related to kind of the tech and science aspects of it, you are starting to see a transition where I think very quickly folks have realized, right, like uh, a lot of uh, uh, New York-based companies, their success with tech, that many of the VCs have realized, I think, uh, is 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 the way to be successful is to kind of embrace uh, the phenomenal wealth they have around them. I mean, and there's been a tremendous lot in New York. I mean, everyone talks about the amazing universities in places like Silicon Valley or Boston, but if you collectively put together the intellectual capital at uh, New York University, Columbia, Cornell, Princeton, uh, and uh, Rockefeller, and so on, Right here in New York, you probably have the biggest density of uh, the smartest individuals generating new technology and science. And a lot of the VCs now are uh, realizing uh, the wealth around them uh, and I think are equally becoming very curious uh, likely, and I think this is this is uh, th- this is all going to augur very well for the ecosystem. Absolutely. All right. So two more bold predictions about it, maybe even EFL. How's that for for the next five years? So at the Endless Frontier Labs, we want to be uh, the number one program for life sciences based startups in the world within the next two years. Period. We want to, as you said, uh, see world renowned disruptive platform companies that save lives but are also very successful commercially come out of the labs. Uh, and we want a number of these companies to come out of the labs uh, and want to be the, world, uh, the world's leading program. Uh, that's, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a prediction, I call it an aspiration, but uh, I think we are doing everything uh, that we can to make it happen. Uh, the second thing is on the deep technology side, uh, particularly big data, uh, companies that end up disrupting enterprises. You, we have the world's largest collection of Fortune 500 uh, companies here in New York. We also want those startups and uh, for us at the EFL to be the world's number one program for technologies that disrupt enterprises and uh, be, be that way. So I hope those are two, pr- two predictions uh, for you. <laughs> uh, well, so, so, so we can look forward to seeing the likes of CRISPR now coming out of... Uh, uh, the NYU CERN EFL program. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that very much. Um, Deepak, be- before we end, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the future research you're doing. You know, I, I never predicted when I got involved with you at EFL that 
I, I'd actually enjoy your research. Um, I probably thought I wouldn't because I, you know, don't enjoy most academic research unless it's science related. Um, you know, and uh, I'm par- particularly uh, uh, skeptical of most economists, even though I love economics. <laughs> that's because we are uh you, you, you know reasonably uh skeptical of our own tribe so it's not you know uh, a famous president once when he was given economic advice uh you, you know what what uh, basically his reaction was give me a one-handed economist uh right because economists have this tendency of equivocating and saying uh, on the one on hand the one we hand. expect <laughs> x but on the other we also expect y so uh, you're, you're not to blame uh so so in terms of uh, the research that i'm looking at i am f- fascinated by how investors make decisions as to which startups to invest in right uh, you can look at the history of companies. Uh, we can look at the history of companies like Airbnb or WeWorks or whatever. They have been rejected by very, very successful VCs by you know Sequoia, you know uh, Clymer Perkins and Bessemer and so so on. In fact, Bessemer maintains this website that they call their anti-portfolio, yeah, right. uh, which is like fascinating. So. Uh, you know, why does this happen? And how do startup VCs and investors make decisions about how to invest in companies? Where are the biases? How can we help them get rid of their biases? Uh, that's what I want to know. And, uh, you know, just, just to kind of uh, give you one example, kind of women entrepreneurs, right? Uh, so last year, less than 4% of the startups funded by uh, VCs were founded by women. It cannot be that the distribution of startup or entrepreneurial talent is so skewed. What is happening to the rest of the women, uh, you, you know, who were looking for funding but did not get funded? Uh, or wh- wh- how can VCs think about uh, what other sources of biases that might be and put together kind of either evaluation processes or maybe even entire funds that uh, sort of exploit these biases. I mean, th- that's kind of one thing that I'm very, very interested in. The second thing that I'm interested in uh, related to my research is thinking about choices made by startups on how to protect their ideas, patents or trade secrets. Uh, You know, patents are all good. They give uh, startups some uh, monopoly rights and legal recourse to infringement by other startups, but startups also have to reveal and disclose their ideas in order to get their uh, patent. So if the patents are not perfect, they can end up revealing a lot of their secret sauce to the rest of the world. So how do they make that decision and what is a good way to protect ideas? Uh, and so on. So these are some of the things that I will continue to think about as I go ahead. Uh, but just, just wanted to uh, give you a preview. Deepak, where can people find you? Where can people find EFL? Um, spell it out for us. Uh, Deepak Hegde from NYU. <laughs> yeah, uh, so you, uh, you, you can always... Yeah, you have my uh, website, dhegday.com. That's my personal website on which my, I list my academic work as well. You can always find me there. You can always find me by email, dhegday, D-H-E-G-D-E, at stern.nyu.edu. Uh, 
Um, and EFL, you can uh, Google the Endless Frontier Labs. You will find it. Uh, EndlessFrontierLabs.com is the website. We have our applications open. If you are a startup, you have a brilliant science or technology-based uh, breakthrough, we would love to see you. Uh, and uh, we, we look forward to hearing from you either through email or, or through a visit to our website.